1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hemrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians.
0: Real love is calling. Listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise.
2: Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. All right? You hear the responsibility there. We have to hold firmly to this. And the implication is that there is something or someone that could potentially snatch this from us if we're not careful. Otherwise, the exhortation wouldn't be there. Hold firmly. Hold on. Because there's potential for something or someone to come along and potentially snatch this from us. The enemy
1: does not sleep, and his only plan is to make sure that you do not make it into heaven. Instead, he wants you to join him in eternal death in hell. When you declare that you have that one-on-one relationship with God, your Creator, you also must make sure you're dedicating time to spend with him and grow stronger in your faith. Today, Pastor Gary will express the importance of putting action to your beliefs. Don't let your faith be in word only. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: If you look here at 1 Corinthians 15, I, I just want to first read verses 1 through 11, then we'll come back. There's a lot in these first 11 verses, so we'll take our time through it. But Paul writes this, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this grace, or rather, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. All right, so we're transitioning now. Paul spends, again, a considerable amount of time in this letter correcting the church at Corinth. They they are doing some things right, but a lot of things wrong. We've been through this list before, and uh, they were carnal. They They took... Uh, you know, pride in um, who they followed instead of taking uh, really pride in just following Jesus. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. And then they also were suing each other. Uh, There was sexual immorality in the church that went unaddressed. Uh, they were not participating in the Lord's Supper properly. They were getting drunk and they weren't waiting for each other. It was just all, uh, and all kinds of messy things. And then what we just finished up from chapters 12, 13, and 14 was Paul talking about the proper use of spiritual gifts. Here's all this is how it's supposed to function in the church. They were misusing the gifts of the Spirit. They didn't understand their proper function and place and operation. So he gets through all of that. And then he says here in chapter 15, verse 1, now, brothers, I want to remind you. Alright, this is not going to be new information, but this is something they need to be reminded of. And for many of you, this may not be new information, but it's good for us to be reminded. And reminded of what? He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Circle that word or highlight it in your Bibles or on your phones. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So for you note takers, the word gospel that we see here is the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion, and it just simply literally translates good news. Whenever you hear the word gospel in the Bible, it just simply literally translates good news. Now the word gospel appears more than 75 times throughout the New Testament. There is good news To be heard and good news that is shared throughout the pages of the Bible, really from cover to cover, but in particular through the New Testament, because the gospel message, the good news is about Jesus. And in relation to Jesus, there is one thing that distinguishes Jesus from all other leaders, from all other prophets, from all other gurus of every other religion in the world. And what separates Jesus from every other human leader, guru, or religious icon is the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is not just something that we read about in our Bibles. I'm going to share with you in a little bit through the course of the study. This is an historical fact that many historians outside of the Bible recorded in the first, second, and third century A.D., so this is a subject that is important for all of us to understand, particularly those of you who don't profess to know Christ. Maybe you're here with a friend, you're kind of un- trying to understand Christianity. You think that Christianity is like all other world religions, and kind of you have believed that mantra that all paths lead to God, you know. And, and the fact of the matter is that there are very many differences between world religions, and Christianity is distinct among world religions, and we can't all be right? And so you have to come to a conclusion as to what you believe to be true, because there are conflicting things among world religions. And so you can't just embrace them all and say, well, they're all right, because then something is not consistent with the other, and therefore there's a contradiction and a conflict. And what is unique and distinct about Christianity is that Jesus, the Messiah, the leader, the prophet. Uh, The son of God, all of those things he was and is, rose from the dead. Muhammad is still in a tomb, Confucius, uh, Gandhi, uh, Buddha, they are all in a tomb. And even those world religions don't even make the claim that their leader rose from the dead. So there's at least agreement on that level. That as it relates to all of the world religions, no other world leader, in terms of a religious leader, ever rose from the dead or ever claimed that he or she would. Only Jesus is distinct in this regard. And so Paul says, I want to remind you of this. This is good news. And so he's going to clarify why it's such good news because of how the resurrection makes Christianity and Christ distinct. Now, He says here in in verse 2 By this gospel by this good news you are saved All right, and that word saved that's a that's a word that christians use a lot. That's christian lingo When did you get saved? And, And when people say that what they mean is right out of the bible I mean, it is a word out of the bible, but it's talking about when did you get saved from dying and going to hell when did you receive christ And when did you get saved and have your sins forgiven? That's what this word means. And so he says here, this gospel, by this gospel, you're saved. If you come to accept and believe and receive by faith this good news, you will be saved from your sins and you will be rescued from death. That even though we die a physical death, your spirit will go to be with the Lord and you will get a resurrected body. And so this, as it is as much unique to Christ is also relative to every person who believes in Christ because this hope of a new life and the resurrection after the dead, after we die, is for all who would believe. So he says, it is by this gospel that you are saved. But notice the end of verse 2. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. this This is an interesting passage of Scripture, and it is part of the other side of the coin as it relates to God's sovereignty, because here in this passage, we have an emphasis on man's responsibility. God is sovereign, but he also calls us to take responsibility in the relationship as well. And this is one of those passages, because he says, by this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly, underline those words, hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So he's saying to us, to the church of Corinth, but it applies to us universally here, he says, listen, there's a responsibility we have in our relationship with the Lord. You have to hold firmly to this. You have to have a firm grasp on God. Now, that is no commentary on his grasp on you. But it is to say that we should have a responsibility to make sure that we don't let go of him. Now, in addition to this place here in 1 Corinthians 15, there are three other places in the New Testament that exhort us to hold firmly to the faith. And I'll just read through them before you can turn there. But it's Titus 1.9. In Titus 1.9, it says, he must hold firmly To the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In Hebrews 3.14, it says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And in Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, to the faith we profess. All right? You hear the responsibility there. We have to hold firmly to this. And the implication is that there is something or someone that could potentially snatch this from us if we're not careful. Otherwise, the exhortation wouldn't be there. Hold firmly. Hold on. Because there's potential for something or someone to come along and potentially snatch this from us. So he puts this responsibility and this emphasis not only here, but in those other passages that I read to you, Titus 1, 9, Hebrews 3, 14, Hebrews 4, 14. Now, that said, let me also give you the other side of the coin and remind you what Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, talking about anybody who believes, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So take comfort in the fact that God will never let you go. All right? His grasp is firm on you. But how firm is your grasp on him? Because that's the other side of the equation when you look at the full counsel of God's word. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Does he expect some responsibility from us? Yes, he does as well. It is both. It is not one or the other. It is both. It is the sovereignty of God working in, in, in conjunction with the responsibility of man that then allows us to be secure in in Christ. Let, let me just share with you out of John's, you can turn there if you want, but John chapter 15, uh, these are all words that Jesus Uh, says to us out of john's gospel chapter 15 i'm going to read verses five through nine and i want you to hear the number of times i'm going to emphasize it when i read it the number of times that jesus calls us to remain in him if you have a king james bible it says abide in him but in, in niv it talks about it uses the word remain listen to just this passage of john 15 from verses five through nine this is what it says Jesus speaking, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Listen to that. That has the connotation of judgment. If you don't remain. He says, verse seven, if you remain in me. And my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be given you This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples as the father has loved me So I have loved you now remain in my love Now I won't read the entire passage, but in john 15 the word remain is found 11 times and jesus puts this emphasis He he makes it clear that we are secure in him, but he also says, I want you to remain in me. I I can remember years ago, listening to Pastor Chuck Smith answer the question, do you believe in eternal security? And his answer was, yes, I believe in eternal security. I believe that I am eternally secure as long as I abide in Christ. And that is both sides of that same coin. Sure, I believe in eternal security as long as we remain in him, as long as we hold firmly to the faith that we've been given. This is what Paul is talking about here back in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So he says, by this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Otherwise, this this is just uh, without effect. And he's going to use the word vain or useless several more times throughout this chapter. He's going to talk about if if this stuff isn't real, then this is all meaningless stuff. If you don't believe in the fundamentals of the faith, that Jesus died on the cross for you, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven. If you don't believe in the fundamental of this good news, then all of this is meaningless. All of this is meaningless. Well, because it's true, it's not meaningless. Look at at verse 3. He says, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. Uh, again, the word I received, if you want to underline that, he's saying, this is not something I came up with. This good news is not something I came up with. I received this. And in fact, in Galatians 1, in his letter to the church of Galatia, in Galatians 1 11 and 12, he says this I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So he says to you, this good news I'm sharing with you, I didn't make this up. Nobody made this up. He says, I received this by revelation of Jesus Christ. This is good news for all who would believe. And he says there at the, at the, um, in the middle of verse 3, and I passed it on to you as of first importance, as of first importance. The Greek word there in the original language for first importance is the Greek word protos. Protos. We get several English words using the word protos. For example, when something is a prototype, it is the first of that kind. It is preeminent. It is supreme. He's saying this good news is protos. It is of chief importance and significance more than anything else. So he's going to explain now, he's going to define what this good news is, but this is of first importance. This is chief and preeminent in the faith. And he's going to define it here. Look at the rest of verse three, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. All right? So there it is in a a nutshell. He describes now or defines the gospel. He says it's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he said back up in verse 2, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Because this is the word that he's preaching. He's preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, if you believe in this, this is the good news, it'll save you. Now, He he mentions here in verse 3, if you'll notice again, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he repeats that as well in relation to the resurrection. He says, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, remember, this is first century AD. This is around 56 AD that Paul is writing this. So, you know, they don't have the completion of the New Testament. It is being formed in the course of the first century by by those whom God inspires by his Holy Spirit to write them. Chief among them, Paul. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. The scriptures he's referring to are what we call our Old Testament scriptures. It's what the Jews call the Torah. It's the sum total of of the Jewish Bible from Genesis to Malachi. And the scriptures in the Old Testament bear witness to the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of jesus and again rather than taking time to sort through it all i'm just going to read a few and if you're taking notes you can jot down some of these verses for example a thousand years before christ david would write psalm 22 and in psalm 22 he speaks about these are all a few verses about the death the prophecy of the death of jesus as the messiah In Psalm twenty-two, fifteen to 18, David writes, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. David writes about crucifixion a thousand years before the Roman Empire prefects it. He says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The gospel writers said that in Jesus' crucifixion was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Because David prophesies about the death of Jesus. Isaiah did as well in Isaiah 53:5, 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Zechariah the prophet described the death of the Messiah. In Zechariah thirteen seven. awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who was close to me, declares the Lord Almighty, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he quotes Zechariah thirteen seven. he says, this was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ because when Jesus was crucified, what happened to all his disciples? They'd scattered, they were dispersed because they were afraid of being arrested. As well, the resurrection of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Psalms 16, verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Isaiah would write in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. It's speaking about the resurrection. In Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. Now, interestingly, that verse in Isaiah 53, 12 is something that Jesus himself quotes about himself before he's crucified, In Luke 22, 37, Jesus said this, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says, And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So, all through the Old Testament, there are more than 300 passages of scriptures that deal with the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that were all fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why Paul writes here when he says, What I received I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And verse 5, now he's going to make this argument because Paul is brilliant like, a, like an attorney who makes this argument based on witnesses. He's going to call witnesses to the stand. Who is a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ? He wants the Corinthian church to understand the truth of the resurrection because as he writes this, this is about 24 years after the resurrection of Christ. And you know what happens in time. People forget or people don't believe.
1: We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of 1 Corinthians. The issues and situations that Paul was addressing in this letter to the Corinthian church are the same issues that churches face today. It's bold and courageous that Paul faced those things head on, and it would be negligent for churches today to not do the same. Despite the idolatry and sin that was running rampant in this culture, Paul encouraged the believers to be a light that shines in a dark world. You can be this today in the dark world that surrounds you. Be a light that glows brilliantly and stands out against the dark blanket of sin that surrounds you. If you're ever in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10 or 11.45 or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to hear your story and how you came to know about the radio ministry of Cornerstone Connection. Find out more details, such as where we're located, at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the book of 1 Corinthians right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul
0: That you've got no place to go But still you know, you're not alone.